0: This is the Urban Urbangelical Podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to Urbangelical. I'm sitting here with Dr. Crystal Farr. She is a professor at the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. She went to Harvard undergrad, and then she did her PhD study at the University of Maryland. She's been out here since 2016. Did I get that right? When did you get to UW?
0: 2015.
1: 2015. Okay. And uh, she's going to be embarrassed when I point out that she wins a lot of awards. Uh, Editorial Board for Outstanding Reviewers, she's run uh, won that twice at the Academy of uh, Management Journal, and she was also Packard Award for the Teacher of Excellence in 2019. Were you surprised by that? Was that encouraging to you to win that, or did you see that coming?
0: Are you talking about the Packard Award? Yeah. Uh I I did not see that coming and that is to me it's a huge it's a huge honor because they they choose one professor in the MBA program and they there's a lot of very very good um instructors and researchers uh in the Foster School so it was That's
1: huge cool. for me. Do you like to teach or do you like to do research or yes?
0: <laughs> I like both because I think um Teaching is, you see the immediate impact of your work in the sense that, you know, you connect with the students and you see them have their aha moments and, you know, they dissect some aspect of their previous professional lives before they came to school. And somehow, you know, having gone through your course, they now have a new understanding of their past experiences and that prepares them to be a better leader going forward. I think that's amazing. I think the students are incredible, too, because... You know, we're, we'll talk about this, but their life experiences are incredible and how it shapes them into the leader that they are and who they want to be as a leader. It's just, it's just amazing. So anyway, teaching has a lot of intrinsic uh, reward to it, I would say. I, I feel like I'm making a difference. Uh, sure. Research for me is so fun also. And the reason is because there's just so much mystery to human behavior, <laughs> sure. I mean, not just our own, but you know, understanding others, even understanding my own kids. And so, uh, I think just asking questions and wanting to find out, you know, like what what would predict this, or why is it that this individual is acting this way, and what impact does that have on the organization? These questions feel fascinating to me, and being able to have the data and also spin a narrative or an explanation um, around that. Uh, that enlightens myself, but also, you know, other managers who might be trying to understand this phenomenon. I think that's, it's been really, it's been, it's it's a really fun way to work.
1: That's, that would be exciting. I, I would, if I could have figured out how to stay in school forever, I might have done that. I can so, see that. You did, <laughs> you did. So, by the way, we should let you know if you're listening or watching that uh, Crystal attends church uh, where I'm on staff. So. Uh, we don't connect often, but when COVID's not around, we see each other, you know, every every Sunday at least, and it's good to it's good to have her join us. So let's um, talk a little bit about your research. What is your focus, and what excites you about exploring it?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So I study something called employee voice, and that's you know jargon for my field. Basically it's understanding employees speaking up with ideas for improvement in the form of suggestions. So what can we do differently from how we're currently doing things and why is that going to be better? Um, but also speaking up with concerns like this practice that we've been uh, following for years and years, I I think it's problematic and here are my concerns as to how it's harming the organization. We, I think we should stop it. So I think that the, this, this concept of employee voice, and I, I call those two things, promotive voice and prohibitive voice. So, promotive is suggestions for improvement. Uh, prohibitive is concerns about things that need to be stopped. Um, it's, it, it, it's so necessary for organizations, especially if you're thinking about innovation. So, you want new ideas, new ways of doing things so you can be more efficient, so you can push out that new product that's going to, you know, best your competitors, right? And, um, uh, and even the prohibitive side is really critical as well. I mean, oftentimes the big disasters in history, like the Columbia, you know, spatial disaster, for instance, right? A lot of that you can trace back to people being unwilling to say, "Hey, I don't think this is going to work," or they said it and nobody listened, right? Um, and so what we're realizing is that employee voice is really critical for organizations. um, But it's not uh, easy to create a culture uh, where people, A, are actively generating these ideas and B, actually voicing them um, to their supervisors and to their coworkers. Um, And then the third piece is having their ideas heard and acted upon. And that piece really relates to, you know, leadership, how leadership responds to ideas from below, how they respond to ideas that may challenge the status quo.
1: Wow, that's great stuff. And it's immediately connected to the world that I serve and the network promotes and is part of starting new congregations. Congregations are of two stripes. Either they love every single new idea that comes along, no matter what it is, because it's different, or mm-hmm. everything was decided 500 years ago. Yeah. and. It's hard. As a leader, I don't lead a congregation anymore, but I did for 25 years. Uh, I'm I'm not sure I always, well, I'm sure I didn't always give room for prohibitive voices. I loved ideas. Come to me with an idea. I don't have a great poker face, so if it's stupid, I might roll my eyes, you know, <laughs> So, but I like that. I like that. Uh, that could be difficult to speak up in a congregation setting? I know you've not worked in one, but you're part of one. What What do you learn? How do leaders, and then I'll try to translate it into our world, how do leaders make room for that? And how do they not make room for those voices?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the research which suggests that there's really, um, there's a couple of ways in which we call them psychological antecedents. So they have to, it's like some kind of, psychological state that an individual has to have before they are willing to speak up with a suggestion or concern okay. right so one such uh, psychological antecedent would be they actually feel like they have the responsibility to generate these ideas and i it seems obvious you know like when you think about an organization and and if you believe that having an idea culture is going to help the organization that of course it's the on the, it's the responsibility of everyone in the organization to find ways to improve things right but very often especially in more hierarchical type of settings where the people at the top are armed with expertise but positional power but also just you know, referent power, by referent power, I mean they're really highly respected mm-hmm. uh, and they're very admired, okay, by um, everyone else in the organization. Sometimes you just feel like it's not your place, right? Uh, you would rather defer to those who might be more in the know. You might defer to those who sort of have that um, authority, if you will, to be directing the direction of the congregation. And so at least in my own experience, I would say um if you're looking to get more input from, you know, congregational members, a big piece of this helping them to see that their input is valuable and desired, right? Um, That it is there, it's part of what it means to be a citizen, um, a member, if you will, of that organization or that congregation. Um, I think another piece of it is just even having enough knowledge to generate ideas that are gonna be good. And so, you know this relates to something i've been working on recently which is what are good ideas and and honestly well and this is this is an important point because a lot of leaders will say i want input from my employees and then they seek them out and then the ideas that come you're like oh my gosh like that that is not something you know i can use or that's not a good idea that doesn't that's so far off from You know what we're doing currently it's hard to see the connection and um so one of the projects i'm currently working on is you know what makes for a good idea and how how can leaders help empower um their members to have these good ideas in the first place right because it's a tall order to expect somebody to have good ideas you know from the get-go um and we know from research on creativity a big piece of that is you have to have knowledge first right you have to be in the know around what you know what are our priorities what are our core values what are our goals and objectives for us to be able to generate idea or a suggestion okay. that will actually speak to those key objectives right and this is what we call desirable ideas like an idea is only desirable to the extent it actually relates and moves the needle in a positive direction on something that matters; otherwise, it's just peripheral.
1: So uh, to, to put pause here, so we can keep track, because yeah, is, of course. Here, the the first component is there's a sense of ownership and yeah. responsibility for. It. Yes. And that is, um, in our setting, would be pretty a pretty existential commitment because we can't charge and pay everybody in the church to do their church job, right? So they're going to need okay. to really be connected. And then the second component is: have they been, have they been informed about the values exactly. and the structures? So we've got two parts: to this existential commitment and awareness. All right. Yes,
0: yes, absolutely. And so I think maybe equipping. So it, it, when I talk to my you know managerial audience, I often say empowering. Right. It's all about you know you giving them information that empowers them to speak. Right. I think perhaps more in this context, we're talking about informing giving them awareness, um, uh, essentially just being able to translate, you know, what's the vision and then how does that relate down to, you know, what an individual is contributing or what they could contribute to that vision. Um, so, uh, so I feel like without that, uh, it's really hard to get good ideas and I'll, I'll cite, some of my research with surgical teams um, on this because and this is the other piece around hierarchy you know surgical teams incredibly hierarchical right so surgeon on top and then pretty much all the members are here surgeon is the expert in the room on the procedure everyone else is sort of expected to be support staff and in in uh in a certain in that's a one way to look at it and so, uh, so if you're trying to get uh, your members to speak up, then, uh, you know, I used to think that if the surgeon comes in and is really relational and builds a lot of rapport and tells a lot of jokes, you know, that's going to create a relationship that will allow people to speak up. But that actually isn't what I found. I found that it's the surgeon that's really clear about what our goals are and keeps members informed on what step is coming next and how they can contribute. I call that coaching. Uh, type of behaviors, that's what actually enabled uh, members to have input uh, that could be valuable. Um, so anyway, I, I think at the end of the day, it's it's three things, right? So the idea has to be desirable. So it has to relate to something that actually matters. And usually that has to be informed by leadership. Um, it has to be uh, feasible. So we have to understand you know, what can we do and what can't we do typically in the business world that's around, you know, the constraints on our resources, things like timing, things like um, do we have the technological capabilities to pull this off, do we have the manpower, et cetera. Um, but it also means culture. Like, what is our organization all about? And does implementing that suggestion go for our culture or does it go against our culture? And that's also in the, in the realm of what's considered feasible. Like, could we do this here?
1: Wow. There's so there's so much there when you were talking about, I was a little surprised by the research. uh, Little micro data you gave about what your expectations were about the doctor. Yeah, I spent I spent so much energy trying to be witty and relational. You know, you just told me I wasted all that energy (laughs) trying to relate to people. Um, no, no, no. So I'll get there
0: in a second. I'll get, I mean, I think relationships are incredibly important. But, and I'll, go, I'll
1: go there in a second. Yeah, but what, I'm sure you do, I know. But the, uh, the idea that the leader in that room is creating structure and space mm-hmm. so that people can um, know what's happening and, and how they can contribute to it, that's like real-time coaching. Yes. Um, that That's super helpful because one of the things pastors do, pastors really live in their heads quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, all ministry leaders do. And uh, it's it, sometimes we anticipate it, ex, we expect people to be making the connections that we're not. So maybe that's a, that's a way to create space for people to, to speak into. Yeah. And do that.
0: I think that's, I think that's, I think that's on point. And I would say that also relates to the commitment piece that we were talking about earlier, right? Like, how do you get these members to feel ownership?
1: Um,
0: When I think, I think it's really giving them a picture around what is the role that you would like them to play. So, you know, the passive role is more, I sit in the pews, you know, take in um, the message and I'm expected to go home and, you know, spiritual formation, et cetera. I think I don't know if most uh, congregational members would think of themselves as, you know, I'm I'm supposed to be giving input and trying to make things better here necessarily. Sure. And so I think communicating that plus arming them with information, you know, that coaching piece is what enables people to not only have the motivation but also the ability to have good ideas.
1: That's uh, that's valuable. I want to get to the relational piece in a minute. Maybe yeah. this is the pathway over there, because obviously we're all for relationships, um, certainly in this world and in, in, in yours too. But one of the articles I read that uh, you contributed, I can't remember where, where it ended up, but uh, you talked about the value and when and where to use emotional intelligence and awareness. Do you, hmm. do you remember the piece? Because it was way buried in your CV. <laughs> is that part of the, so for the, for the audience, it's pretty long, her curriculum. I'm embarrassed, no, enough, I, love, but, I appreciate that, yeah. But the, uh, is that what, would that doctor in that scene or the pastor be over relying on connection and awareness of others? and sort of missing the point about what they need in the moment? Is that what that's getting at, or am I, am I misapplying that
0: concept? I think that that is, I think that that, that is actually on point. I, I won't go to emotional intelligence just yet. Let's start with the race, relational piece, and then we can talk about the okay. emotional intelligence piece, because okay. I see emotional intelligence as being able to figure out what someone needs at what time, and so then that, okay. adjusting, your, adjusting your approach uh, accordingly. Um, my thought is that, you know, the research on the surgeons, I did that based on, what happened during the operation? So, if you think about the operation, it should be very task focused, right? I mean, clearly, there's a patient, you know, yes. under and so so I think what was happening is if surgeons, and you only have so much time, okay, so surgeons are sitting there shooting the breeze, you know, trying to be relational while the surgery is taking place. what Not it good. does is it crowds out, it takes the focus away from the task and it moves it on to like, the relationships we're building here, okay? And so the problem is then what that generates is a lot of relational talk from the people in the room. And it's harder and harder for people to then talk about the task. So when the surgeon on the other hand used a coaching approach or even a directing approach where they were very specific about the things that they, the task related things they wanted members of the team to be engaging in, that was was powerful and enabling these types of um you know suggestions and concerns because it it helped everyone stay aware but it also indicated that like we are talking about the task and i want you to you know provide me with input on how we can do this better um now that does not mean relationships aren't important especially in that world but clearly in your world as well i mean in everywhere i'm not just saying you know. (laughs) <laughs> that we don't typically care about relations. We do um, because when you have a relationship with someone, it creates trust. It creates a willingness to be vulnerable. It creates a, willing, a, a, a feeling of psychological safety. So psychological safety is essentially me believing that if I take a risk, if I take a chance, if I disagree with you, for example, if I challenge something that you say, you're not going to penalize me for for it in some way. Like, you're not going to see me as disloyal. You're not going to see me as incompetent. You're not going to see me as, you know, less than in some shape or form. And so, I mean, psychological safety, that's, we talk about this all the time in business school because that is, if you can't create that type of a space with the people on your team, you're not going to get ideas from them, number one, right? Mm -hmm. You're just going to get really safe ideas. You're never going to get ideas that really challenge the status quo, And those are the kind of ideas that are gonna get you to that next level. So psychological safety is critical for any kind of learning uh, to take place. So people being willing to acknowledge where they have gaps and where they need additional information. Um, Psychological safety is essential for creativity. So, you know, and then you ask at the end of the day, how do you create psychological safety? Well, certainly there's things like being a humble leader you know, being very clear about your own fallibility, fallibility is status quo, cool. being open to other people's ideas, but a big piece of it is just having that trusting relationship, knowing that, you know, whatever I say, it's not going to be held against me. It's not going to be twisted or misinterpreted. Um, you know, I will be understood for why I said what I said and that it's constructive, right? So when it comes to surgeons, for instance, uh, it might not be appropriate to be especially relational during a surgery. If you want people just to have task-related, you know, ideas, etc., but it's probably a really good idea to have those things be, be investing those relationships outside of the surgery, so right. before the yeah. surgery begins, after the surgery, and like we saw a lot of that. We saw a lot of sort of relational recovery after a very task-intensive operation. Oh, just surgeons taking the time to you know, check in with everybody. What did we learn? How's it going? How you feel about that? A lot of this sort of relational rapport building that took place before and after, and, and we found that to be very effective.
1: That is, you know, my wife, Sandy, who you know, she would just be here nodding, you know, like, listen, Mike, because my, my biggest weakness or one of my biggest weaknesses as a leader is that I'm Irish. And I just have a million stories for everything. Everything reminds me of a story. And um, and I just did that today. I'm doing a story now. I did that today. I led some, our residents were here, and I was teaching a church planning residents some leadership development, leadership uh, dynamics. And and I gave them a task to work on. And then right after I gave them a task, I told them a random story, and they all looked at me confused. It was a brilliant story. <laughs> but it didn't have anything to do with what I just told them to do. So uh, what I'm hearing you say is that competence also builds confidence. So you have the relationship. But then when people know what they're supposed to do, 100%. In their context, then they, they create that psychological safety. 100%. What else have you learned that uh, promotes that, uh, the, a culture that allows people to speak up and gives them voice? Now, Obviously, I can do that in my world because I'm the director of a, when I'm having a meeting, but how do people do that when they're not in a senior position? What helps them do that?
0: Oh, very interesting. So what if, what if you're not necessarily in, like the formal leadership position? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like, make it yeah. safe for other people? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. So I, I always say, first of all, it is, it is actually largely on the person at the top. Sure. Um, because safe this feeling of safety and whether I'm going to be evaluated whether there's going to be you know consequences for me saying this or that uh, something that disagrees with the power the powerful individual in the room I think that that it has to be cleared first otherwise I think what peers do and others in the room I think it's it's uh to me it's secondary Uh, it really does start from the top Um, but I think that there's a lot that other members can be doing. So for instance, uh, we know a lot about social modeling. So if you have a peer who is speaking up quite a bit, right, and they're demonstrating that ownership, then that you learn from that situation and you also. I think watching the way leadership responds to other people's ideas is another great way to facilitate psychological safety. So for example, if somebody has, you know, a half-baked idea, right? And if the leadership is like, that's a half-baked idea. So we, um, next, you know, which sometimes we're tempted to do. Because sometimes you just have too many ideas coming through. And then some of them, you know, clearly you're just like, that, that's so off base, right? Let's move on to the next Especially
1: one. Especially in, in the world that, that I operate in as a church leader. Um, I, I'm not promoting that being dismissive or critical or mocking people's ideas is good in any way. That that's not a good thing to do. But there's another layer on because whenever I'm talking with somebody, I'm also their pastor. Yes, and they're in their community that's supposed to be safe for them. So that's yeah. intensified. A lot of these things are are sort of doubled down in in the church world.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense because I would say managers in the business world, they don't have that obligation to also pastor. I mean, I think as a pastor, you are already thinking about where this person is currently and then where they could go. Right. And the whole goal as a pastor is to get them to that next level in their spiritual maturity or whatever it is, right. Or in their ministry leadership, et cetera. Um, So, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I would recommend though, is, you know, we, we have that perspective when it comes to people growing, we don't always have that perspective with respect to ideas, growing Um, ideas, getting better. How can I coach you to have better ideas? How can we take that idea and tweak it? And, you know, so I think that whole showing that you can partner with them on coaching them through what. How to make that idea better so that we could actually do something with it is that whole demonstration shows that it's okay to be developing on this on this front. and it and it shows everybody else in the room that this is the process we go through, and it's okay to come with an idea and because we're gonna work on it together.
1: A partial idea or uh, or an idea that's obviously not fully formed, but maybe not even fully proper directionally, but has some merit to it. Exactly. Exactly. As, uh, you know, one of the things about creating space for that, uh, there's a, the toxic leader, which uh, we've all encountered, you know, or maybe been, you know, the toxic leader is easy to identify, but there's a continuum. Yeah. The, the, the leader that doesn't appear to be toxic, can shut all this down, Mm -hmm. right? And that's its own form of, it's maybe we wouldn't call that toxic, but it's limiting the development of the organization and the individual. Yes. So um, have you explored this idea, concept, where they come from and how they foster with relationship to the, to the character and gifting of the, top leader and how they foster that i imagine it intersects with toxicity and you know other things i'm just wondering cuz i want people to be better leaders and better mm-hmm. and better ministry leaders and i guess if you're yeah. a jerk people won't bring ideas to you it's kind of as simple as that
0: yeah i think i think i think you're right on so if if you're an abusive supervisor which is the term that we use in academia for this kind okay. of you know so you ridicule people, you know, based on their ideas, you question, you know, the quality of their contributions, things like that, or, you know, there's, there's a whole list of really interesting behaviors associated with that. But anyway, so if you're like this, okay, then yeah, for sure. I mean, you're not going to get ideas at all. Uh, uh, But I think you're right in the sense that there's, it is a continuum. And there's a lot of just kind of not toxic, but not particularly inviting or participative or empowering forms of leadership, right? Um, and I would say with respect to idea culture, one thing we're realizing is that fairness is a huge piece of this.
1: So if- that. What do you mean by f- fairness, you
0: said? Yeah, fairness in the way that you handle people's ideas. So yeah. it, it's it's a little counterintuitive because we don't usually, we think of fairness in terms of like, you know, how you allocate resources to individuals or how you allocate, you know, pay or incentives, et cetera. And we, we talk a lot about that, um, but we don't usually think about that with respect to how we handle people's ideas, right? And the idea is that, um, you know, you could get five different suggestions from various individuals. Well, how are you gonna evaluate which idea you're gonna go with? And, you know, how are you gonna handle the ideas that you turn down, right? Um, oftentimes you can't pursue all of them and so it does become this allocation choice like where are we going to allocate our effort, our time, our focus out of these five ideas And in that process what we're finding is that if if you have some kind of consistent criteria, for example, okay we say all right, you know this is the core value like here's the goal, right so, a good idea is an idea that hits on these three things. And, you know, that's, what's considered when we evaluate ideas, we're going to go through this checklist, for example. Okay. Um, or making, making sure that everyone who has an idea has an equal opportunity to get those ideas heard um, and uh, presented to the rest of the group. So the piece around this is, So a good example of this is, okay, just imagine a group discussion, right? And you're holding a meeting. You're like, everyone just bring your ideas. And we start talking. Typically what happens is the loudest person or whoever talked first or the most charismatic personality in the room will suck up all of the attention and focus. And the likelihood of them getting their idea acted upon versus even being able to hear from any of the other people in the room you can see that it's not going to be balanced, right? And it's not going to be a fair process of even getting these ideas heard. Um, so I think when I say fair, it's about you know, having a consistent set of criteria as to how you're going to evaluate these ideas and decide which one you're going to go with, but also just making sure that you know, everyone has an opportunity to bring their ideas to the table and that it's not just dominated by you know, the loudest voice.
1: Well, this, this, as I'm sitting here listening, thinking about our current moment, which is not only current but <laughs> historic, this could intersect certainly in the church and in organizations too with uh, a lot of gender bias and racial bias, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. sort of th- there's a culture to the way decisions are made as well as the metric by which you measure them. Yeah. So I imagine that. Are these tools sometimes, or can they be used to create a, a space and a platform so the the loud person, the charismatic person, but also let's put it this way: the person that I'm most likely to listen to, I'm the senior leader, and I like ABC, so I'll listen to people that do ABC. Exactly. This gets this gets us around that a little bit, right?
0: Exactly. And okay. it is it's hard. I mean, it's very very natural. <laughs> it's very unlikely that you're going to have an equal relationship with everybody you work with. We know this from decades of research. There's this thing called, um, you know, leader member exchange. So it relates to the the extent to which your relationship is, is characterized by high trust, high commitment, um, high level of familiarity. Um, and you don't, develop that same level of relationship with every person you work with it's not possible simply because the amount of energy and effort it takes to forge one of these things is just it's enormous so the likelihood and you have to maintain it too it's not just you know you forge it and then it just lives on its own no like you you have to it's your network right you have to keep maintaining it and so you know every leader is going to have those those individuals that they have a really strong relationship with high quality sort of leader member exchange, and then there's going to be a lot of other members that they don't have that relationship with. Well, when it comes to hearing ideas, then, well, you bet the people (laughs) who you are close to, I mean, that's the natural, that's the natural tendency, right? We know this also from research on diverse teams. It is just way harder to hear the voices of people who are dissimilar or different from you or who have a different perspective Mm -hmm. than it is to hear it from, hear a perspective that is more similar, familiar. Comes from somebody that you consider in your in-group, et cetera.
1: Um, Are you exploring tools, pathways to make space for this? Acutely important in our moment in time, but also in the church to address that. Any help on how leaders can, you know, create fairness and overcome those things? It's yeah, I- problems
0: so I don't have any, I don't have any research on this just yet. Um, Well, well, I do. So the work that I've been doing on hearing the voice of token women in the Marine Corps. So this Mm -hmm. is another, this is uh, more of my recent papers, uh, but it's just basically getting at that, right? So you have a diverse voice in the, the group that you might, this is a lone female in a team that's otherwise male-dominated. It's also historically, traditionally male-dominated culture uh, in the Mm -hmm. Marine Corps. So how is she going to speak up, number one? And what are leaders doing to enable her to speak up and also hear, Mm -hmm. actually act on her voice, right? Um, And I don't have any tools to suggest, but in that paper, we find that when leaders had more positive beliefs about women in the military so thinking that they're highly capable very uh, you know effective leaders physically strong combat ready if they believe these things about women in the military they were more likely to invite um, her perspective and when she did give her perspective take it seriously and actually act on it right Mm -hmm. Um, so that's more of an implicit sort of like, what's your mindset with respect to what people have to value or have have to contribute that might be valuable? Um, that is that is not exactly a tool, but I think it's a starting
1: point. It's because even if you have point, to. Exactly. I don't know if you know this, but uh, our son was in the Marine Corps infantry for four years.
0: I did not know that.
1: And. Um, yeah it's a it's a very rigid uh classically masculine environment yeah and it's uh political correctness has not worked its way into the platoon level of the marine corps it's just it's just not it's just not a thing so that would be hard to overcome now you know the tradition that we come from um and the church is in the same category you know, we're, we're we're we've been good at saying what women can't do in the church, but we don't have a space for what women can do in the church. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate about what if there's anything they can't do, and that's a discussion worth having. But what I'm hearing you say is that as a leader, you have to back up and really evaluate what you're expecting in a congregational meeting or mm-hmm. in a team meeting how your preconceived notions are going to leave space for people. And whether yeah. you think, whether you even process, you don't process. Nobody goes to a meeting at a church and says, these are the type of people I'm not going to listen to.
0: Yeah, right.
1: But we do that subconsciously.
0: That's right. Exactly. And that's, and that's the point. It, it, these implicit beliefs biases even, um, they, they come out in various forms. They come out in the way, like, who do we ask? Who do we look at when we ask a question? Okay. Waiting for a response. It comes out um, in terms of our nonverbal, but also verbal responses when someone does give their perspective. It comes out in you know our, our interpretation of their intent, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a lot of things. Now, that said, so I recently did a talk at Amazon uh, about, you know, fostering an idea culture, and they're very quick to let me know that they have certain tools that may help to play level the playing field, right? So since mm-hmm. we've talked about Amazon, I figure we would, or we did it in the pre-interview dialogue, but um, mm-hmm. so uh, they have what we would call a writing culture. They're famous for saying, if you have a new idea or something, you've got to, You have six pages or less to explain the idea. You got to propose it. You know, they call them um, PRFAQs. So what's that? Press release, uh, frequently asked questions. Imagine what it would be like if we were to write a press release for this product or idea, whatever. The point is that it's written, okay? And Mm -hmm. so because it's written, people have had a lot of time to think about the idea, how they want to frame it, Right. Um, But it gets circulated, and everyone's required to read it before they even have a discussion. Now, why is that great? Because a lot of times when it's an unstructured group discussion, then that's where the loudest voices dominate. And a lot of these sort of implicit biases that we are aware of or not aware of, they run rampant, right? When you put some structure around it, I'm not saying necessarily through a writing culture, but they do it this way, by putting that structure to it where you're forced to write, you're forced to articulate, but also everyone in the room is forced to read and yeah, then have the discussion. I think that that's where ideas kind of come are able to be put on a a level playing field, right? And you you take out things like the charismatic speaker. You take out things like the person who's your buddy or, you know, your best
1: friend. Who you vacationed with last year and had a great time with.
0: Exactly. And it's not necessarily anonymous, but it, 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 it gives you the opportunity to have an idea out there on its merits, as opposed to clouded by many of these other things.
1: Well, this is, we're coming full circle, I think, because I'm tying this to the beginning of the, what makes people speak up, and one of them is that they have ownership, you know, a sense of of responsibility. So let me let you into the pastoral mind. There is a low-grade frustration in every pastor's mind because uh, they're so asymmetrically connected with what's happening in the church to everybody else that's connected to the church. And nobody, you know, Sandy once told me when I was super discouraged in Indiana, she said, you know, Mike, nobody thinks about this church as much as you do. Yeah. And I looked at her and she said, nobody. I kind of think she meant including her. So <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, she disputes that. But, but the point is, we're, there's a low-grade frustration with all of us. It can be pretty discouraging. Whatever dynamics are involved in that, what I'm hearing in this conversation is we are perhaps not creating the space for people to feel like it would make a difference, or there's a pathway. Yeah. Or there's or, there's organizational cultural uh, culture for that sort of thing. Yes. So some of these tools might be useful to maybe change that a little
0: bit yeah and i i think that i think that that might not i mean certainly it could be applied to seeking more involvement from congregational members but also just among your team like your staff right sure. so just getting ideas on like how could we do this so i think if there's multiple layers um <laughs> yes as somebody who is a Congregational member who is not always very active. I hear you on that one. <laughs> Am I thinking about? Uh, no, I'm not actually, to be honest.
1: I wasn't, um, <laughs> I wasn't going after you. You're here. You are helping me out. So,
0: but I can, but I can see, I can see where you're coming from on that. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it is, it's hard because there's, I guess you're, you're coming from a place of having to have to move people from not necessarily expecting themselves to have that role to creating that mindset yeah. that they should have that role. I think in most organizations, when you get hired, there's already an existing culture around, you know, how much involvement do we want you to have? And so exactly. people get socialized into that. And the expectation is, you know, if you're a citizen of this organization, then you're going to help us be the best we can be, right? And that involves
1: this, this, and isn't that. It's complicated in our world because we don't want to give people another part-time job. That, that's not, they don't need that from us. Uh, they need us to serve them too. so so the the analogy um, you know certainly certainly breaks down the uh, but the idea of voice is uh, is critical because you know, let's say you don't even have an idea, but you want to say something because you have a concern. Uh, I've not always created that space. I've, if you come to me with a concern, I can bullet point you. I, I would just that's how. <laughs> Listen, it, it, it maybe is not going to be pretty. I could just take care of it right away. It's really <laughs> sinful. That's that's partly the way my family was when I grew up, you know. Uh, but so we need to really uh, create that kind of context. So there's two layers for us, Crystal. One is the congregation as a whole, and then the other is our staff. Mm-hmm, right. So you, you have a staff it's kind of a hybrid thing because even if you're in a small church, you might have a part-time staff and then you might have two key volunteer ministry leaders that are really in it, maybe giving you 15 hours a week, which isn't a lot unless you realize they give their job 50 hours a week, you know? So you need to create, create space for that kind of thing. This has been very, very helpful. And I want, uh, I want to put you on the spot a little bit as we, as we start to, to get into our final approach and uh, see if there's things that you've wondered about how churches do things or how they might rethink of how they do things in your involvement in congregations. That, uh, and I'm totally not cued you up for this, but as someone who studies leadership, there are certain operational assumptions or patterns that the church has that sometimes you just scratch your head and say, have they ever thought about this?
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. All right. Um, You know, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit back to the whole legacy campaign because it's recent in my mind and, and I, there was a lot of sort of leadership around, you know, organizational change and getting commitment from all the congregational members.
1: and. So by the way, for those listening, that was a, a, a fundraising campaign that we engaged in that was really connected to our mission and vision pretty deeply. So that's the legacy campaign. Keep going.
0: Yeah. So, well, what I was going to, so this is not so much of a, I scratched my head at this, but I remember thinking as I was seeing this whole campaign sort of roll out you know jessica Rivera being very very uh visible throughout that leading that effort right and being a woman yes
1: um
0: and also uh just how there were layers of communication and there was just a lot of effort around informing everybody as to like what's the situation and why is it that our current situation cannot continue and you know So I, I, and then just attending also to, you know, mindset and, you know, where people's hearts are with respect to giving. And I thought that it was really well done. And from a, especially from an organizational change standpoint, because, you know, I'll teach about this stuff. And there's this idea that uh, if you don't create some kind of, so there's a whole model for this, right? How you do it, how you're supposed to communicate the vision, how you're supposed to, you know, overcome resistance, et cetera. And I thought to myself that it was, it was really well done, but it was also there were there it was also an opportunity to you know feature diverse voices in the process. There was a lot of there were a lot of you know budget meetings and just that were there was a lot of transparency around that that enabled you know people to to be equipped with knowledge and to be able to ask questions and raise concerns. So, you know, I don't think we're not doing that on a daily basis, obviously, sure. right? But I think the effort Thankfully. of thoughtfulness, I know, because it takes so much to be that intentional mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it being a campaign, I understand. So, you know, you're not only intentional, but you have to be careful about how you do it. Right. And yeah. so I think, um, but I remember that time I was like, wow, like that was, that was done really well. And I think in some ways, thinking about that and you know, how can we do a little bit more of that on a regular basis, you know, during what we would consider just everyday um, church experience. I thought that, that that was a that to me, I was very pleased to see how it rolled out.
1: That's that's really encouraging to hear. We thought a lot about those exact things when we were, you know, in in the room trying to figure out how to how to deploy it so it's really satisfying uh, i wasn't looking for an attaboy but we'll take that and, and we'll pass it on <laughs> Just, um what i think the the lesson is how to keep that going and i'm not sure we've been as good at or she you know i don't know everybody's going to get a mulligan for 2020 because of covid i guess but uh mm-hmm. we've not been as good about that you know moving forward because we've all gone. In.
0: For listening, Urbanical is a ministry of the Northwest Church Planting Network in Seattle, Washington. If you would like to be notified of future podcasts, please visit nwcpnetwork.com and click Podcasts.